Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to be here with us in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words now be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And so once again, we come to Advent, that season that begins the church year and helps us to prepare ourselves for Christmas, the incarnation, the coming or the advent of Jesus Christ. And Advent, the readings that are assigned in church in this season are all full of waiting and expectation, often from the prophets of the Old Testament, readings about hoping for something to come. And sometimes I wonder if it might be a little hard for us to see the correlation between biblical expectation and contemporary expectation, what we might be waiting for today, especially in light of the fact that we live not only on the other side of the incarnation after Jesus is coming, but after the resurrection too. In some sense, we're on the total opposite end of the spectrum from the prophets who were looking forward exclusively and had the whole story of God's redemption ahead of them when what we're seeing is so much in the past. So what does waiting mean for us when we know how the story ends? We resurrection people are expecting, or so we're told, something that has already definitively and absolutely come. So how can we read something like Isaiah, the text that we read this morning, and find modern-day relevance? Well, actually, I think we don't have to look too hard. Today, I want us to look at the prophet's cry for God to come down and intercede for his people. And I think that as we look at that plea for God's intercession, we're going to see some pretty clear parallels to our contemporary lives even as we celebrate the redeeming work of Christ that is absolutely already accomplished. So let's go back. Back before Advent, before Incarnation, before Resurrection, 600 years before Jesus' birth, when the Jews return home from their Babylonian exile, Jerusalem is a ruin. The temple has been destroyed. Everything is a wreck. There was only one place for them to turn, to their God. And so they called out to him. Come down, they said. Come down here. Help us make things better. We have come to the first Sunday in Advent, 2023 years after Jesus' birth, But I want to suggest to you that things aren't all that different, at least in feel, if not in detail, than they were for those ancient Israelites. We don't have a temple, but if we did, doesn't it feel like it would be destroyed? Doesn't it feel like everything is a wreck? This world 
we inhabit is full of theological error, governmental uncertainty, cultural upheaval. They're even literally talking about another strange respiratory illness breaking out in China. And so we call out to God. Come down, we say. Come down and make things better. Our lament is the same as theirs. And our plea, our desire for God's intervention is the same too. So let us consider now what Isaiah's prophetic words to the people of Israel then can mean as God's words to us, his people, today. Now the text we have assigned to us this morning is the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 64. And we're going to go through them in three sections. I have a very organized sermon for you this morning. Uh, First, the call for God to come. That's verses 1 through 4. Then our sinfulness, verses 5 to 7. And God's promise, verses 8 and 9. We're going to look at them in order, one at a time. The call for God to come, our sinfulness, And his promise, which we're going to see at the end, is a promise kept in Christ Jesus. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Isaiah calls out to God in the first verses of chapter 64. So that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. Isaiah is calling on God to come now. In order, though, to properly understand Isaiah's desire for God to come down, I think we're going to need to go back a little bit into the previous chapter to see why it is that Isaiah the prophet is calling out to God. And when we do, we'll see that he's calling out for two reasons. One, external to the people, like problems out there and one internal to them, problems in here, both of which parallel our experience today. So in Isaiah 63, verse 15, just a couple verses before our assigned reading this morning, the prophet says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. And when I read this, the first thing I noticed was Isaiah's description of God's dwelling in heaven. Holy, he says, and beautiful. And remember what's happened to God's dwelling on earth, the temple. It has been burned to the ground, totally destroyed. So Isaiah here is pointing out the difference, in a sense he's asking God to notice the difference between where he's living in heaven and his supposed house here on earth. 
Hey, God, Isaiah is saying, you might want to look down from your ivory tower up there and note that your people are suffering. Your earthly dwelling place, your temple, is a smoking hole in the ground. Come down and help us. The first verses of our text are a plea for God to come and help. This kind of external tribulation, people have come and destroyed us, is a major reason we call out to God even now. God, I know you live in heaven, where, as it says in Revelation 7, there is no hunger or thirst, no scorching heat. Every tear has been wiped away from every eye, that one day you'll remake heaven and earth. But that's not what it's like here and now. Don't forget about us, your people here. We've got two wars going on, both of which threaten to become worldwide at any moment. Our society is falling apart such that states, attorneys general, are suing the parent company of Facebook and Instagram for deliberately targeting what the company calls the weaknesses in the brains of pre-teenagers. And let's not forget that we have an election coming up in which fully half the country plans to vote for that guy. You know the one I mean. I don't know if I can handle it. God, come down and help me. But in the midst of this angst and suffering, the first point that we can take away from our text this morning is actually an encouraging one. You are allowed to follow Isaiah's example. You're allowed to call out to God in this way, to almost shout to him. Hey, you, remember your people. I'm reminded of that scene in The Apostle where Robert Duvall is alone in his attic, yelling at God. I'm confused, he says. I'm mad. I love you, Lord. I love you, but I'm mad at you. Now, Isaiah can yell at God for two reasons. First, because he actually believes God is there and listening. And second, because he remembers God's promise. Isaiah is yelling in faith. We are God's people, Isaiah is saying. And Isaiah is saying this to you. You are God's people, and he has made you a promise. And God keeps his promises, and it's okay to remind him. So that's the external tribulation. We call out to God to help us from the things out there. Temple is destroyed in Israel. Our world is falling apart outside our windows. God, remember us. Look down on us. Keep your promise. Come and take care of us. But of course, there is an internal reality at play here, too. And we should have seen this coming, right? As much as we'd like it to be true that all of our problems are caused by evil dictators, internet companies, or elections by things outside our windows, outside ourselves, it's just not the case. We are the people who listened to the serpent and believed the lie. And ate the fruit. The true root of our problems 
is much closer to home. So now Isaiah 63, verse 15. The verse immediately following Isaiah's drawing of God's attention to the difference between his beautiful heavenly home and the destruction of his earthly home. Here's what Isaiah says, acknowledging that Israel has problems of an internal sort too. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Isaiah invokes Abraham and Israel, and when he says Israel here, he means Jacob. He's talking about the famous patriarchs of the nation, and he says that they don't know or acknowledge the people. What does he mean by that? He's saying, we have fallen so far that our own forefathers would not recognize us anymore. And this actually is a very common prophetic refrain. The Old Testament prophets seem to have spent most of their time telling the people of Israel versions of You're looking so much like the pagan nations around you that your God won't recognize you. That's what Isaiah is saying here. If Abraham and Jacob could see you now, they would think you were indistinguishable from the Canaanite worshipers of Asherah, the very people that you were supposed to replace in the land. Imagine if our New Testament forefathers, people like Paul or Peter walked onto the American evangelical scene today. Can you imagine what they might say about some of the church's current capitulation to the culture or our hesitation to tell our non-Christian friends about Jesus? I suspect they would have strong words for us 21st century Christians. And like Israel, then, we too are often failing to uphold the standard that God has set for us. We confess this every single week. Our problems are not just out there. They are in here, too. And I mean all the way in here, in each one of our hearts. We, like they, need God to come. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. So all of that prelude there, all of that background from chapter 63, is what causes Isaiah to spend the first four verses of chapter 64 pleading for God to come. But Isaiah knows that God coming down is a two-edged sword. This is the friction of Advent. What will happen When God Almighty comes here. Yes, on the one hand, he'll get rid of all the bad stuff and set everything right. And that sounds great. But on the other hand, we, you and I, are part of the bad stuff. So now verses 5 to 7, the second section of our reading. You meet those who gladly do right, Isaiah says. Those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry. We sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean. 
and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. This is confession. St. Paul picks up on this line of thought in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, showing that this is not just a problem in Isaiah's day. It's clear that Paul actually has this text in mind. What then, he asks, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Here's the thing that both Isaiah and Paul are getting at. If God comes down to do away with all the evil, it puts all of us in the line of fire too. Even his own children. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners, right to the core. So, like I said, this is the friction of Advent. Is asking God to come down a bad idea? Isaiah admits that if God comes, we won't have any control over him. Yet, O Lord, you are our father, he says in verse 8, we are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. That's the transition point between the second section, the confession that we are all sinners, and what's coming now in the third and final section. Here, Isaiah is saying, you are in control, God. But Isaiah has hope. Because in this final section, he plans, like Robert Duvall and the Apostle, to remind God of his promise. This is good news for us, for you and me, that despite our sin, we have one card left to play. Here's Isaiah 64, verses 8 and 9. Yet, O Lord, yet, having said all of that, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. We have, we sinners, have one thing we can do. One thing that makes begging God to come down and get involved in our lives a good thing, a necessary thing, and not a frightening thing. In faith, we can remind God of his promise. God, we shout, don't forget, you made a promise to us. It's a promise, by the way, recorded in Jeremiah 33. Here's what you said, God. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We'd like you to pay special attention to that last part, O Lord. You will be our God, we will be your people, and you promised to forgive our iniquity and to remember our sins no more. And Isaiah says it in almost exactly the same way. Verse 9, Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider we are all your people. And what does reminding God of his promise look like? It looks like calling out to him. That's prayer. It looks like repentance, like confession. It looks like the affirmation of our faith, like we say in each recitation of the creed every week. It's like participation in the Lord's Supper. It looks like the reliance on the very promises of which we are reminding God. And there is good news for those people who remind God of his promises. Our God always keeps his promise. Remember, for the people of Isaiah's time, the good news is still in the form of a promise made. It's that promise that we remember as we celebrate Advent, waiting and waiting and waiting for God to come and fix things. But for those of us who live on the other side of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, our good news is not just in the form of a promise made, but in the form of a promise already kept. God has kept his promise and has saved his people. On account of Jesus, your iniquity is not remembered. And so, when we become aware of our sin, through reading and believing the law, having it written on our hearts, and when we offer that sin to the Lord through repentance and confession, we can, like the prophet, remind God that we are his people. And we can do that because of one simple truth. We are his people, his adopted children, because intercession has been made for us. Because a sacrifice has been made for you. Because you are covered by the righteousness of God's beloved, sinless Son, Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but on account of Jesus, your sin has been cast as far from you as the east is from the west. And now, God's coming down, what we are symbolically waiting for in Advent, is truly an occasion for joy and celebration. Now, because of the coming and accomplishment of Jesus Christ, you, yes, even you, are regarded as God's own adopted child. Forgiven, redeemed, and beloved. He has come for you. Rejoice 
Rejoice. Emmanuel has come to you. Amen.